This is the woman behind the business, featuring honest dialogue that advances and inspires women entrepreneurs. Here's your host, Angel Livis. This week on the woman behind the business for the love of chocolate. You know me, I'm your host, Angel Livis, and today we're talking about the one piece of candy that melts in your mouth and helps women relieve anxiety and stress, all while tasting oh so good. Well, to most people. Now, I'm not a chocolate fan. However, I know plenty of women who love the taste of chocolate. Well, I'm going to introduce you to the woman behind DB Bourbon Candy, what's believed to be the first African-American candy company of its kind in Kentucky. Now, while Robin Stewart's chocolates have made it to the Academy Awards, the Oscars, the Breeders' Cup, and other notable events, she is most proud of her roles that allow her to be of service to other women veterans. During her six years in the army she was responsible for shipping ammunition to desert storm from germany and had the amazing opportunity to walk out her dream of being a fashion model on the weekends while stationed there she is the epitome of a hard worker who wasn't afraid to bet a hundred percent on herself and i'm happy to have my soror of alpha kappa alpha sorority incorporated in studio with me today from kentucky welcome thanks for having me Yes, I'm so excited. I feel like there are so many layers to you, and I can't wait to start peeling them back. Um, I know you kind of came on the show, and I didn't give you a heads up about what we do at the end of the show, but we'll get to that. So let's start here. Let's start talking about your role in the military, Um, because that's the one thing that you did very early on, and that's the one thing that you're still very passionate about. Why did you decide to go into the military and serve an army? Well, it started out me wanting to get away from my mom because I was a spoiled brat. Mm -hmm. And so I just went into a recruiter's office and I told him I wanted to enlist. And I went to... You went by yourself? Yeah. Yeah. And then I uh, went reserves first. Mm Mm-hmm. And I came back home and I told my mom I enlisted. And she's like, no, you didn't. I said, no, seriously, I'll be leaving in a few weeks. And she didn't believe it until that bus pulled up for me to (laughs) pull off. (laughs) Really? Yeah. And so there was really no desire to be in the military. It was just like, I got to get away. Right. I mean, my father was in the Air Force. My brothers were in um, both Marines and Army. Mm -hmm. But never in a day would I thought I was going to be in the service because in my family, my grandmother, you went to college, you fell in love, you got married, you had kids. Mm -hmm. And your life ain't looking nothing like that. (laughs) Not at all. (laughs) All right. Now, what was the hardest part about being a woman um, to aid a colonel in the 196th Ordnance Battalion? Uh, The hardest thing for most females in the military is getting the respect that you deserve the the same outcome as every man in the military. It's like, I can do the same thing you can do regardless of my sex. Mm -hmm. And when they put women in most positions that aren't required to be in combat, it doesn't matter. It's still, you're still in combat because some of the times when we go overseas or in battle, there's the women behind the scenes that have to go in the front of the scenes to make certain things happen, mm-hmm. which is our positions were normally secretaries or, you know, messengers and things like that. But people don't realize you're still in harm's way. Mm-hmm. And that was most the trouble with me in the military. And plus, I, the listen and do what I say thing didn't happen a lot with me. Yeah, I had a little problem with that. So 
because I was brought up to speak my mind and stand up for what I believed in and ask questions. Mm-hmm. Not just do it because I told you to do it. And in the military, they wasn't having it. So that's why you only lasted six years. <laughs> <laughs> that was a good thing. That was a good thing. Now, what was one of the greatest lessons that you learned from being in the military? I, I must say, leaving United States because it made the world bigger. Mm. It was bigger than just my little house and corner and street in Lexington, Kentucky. You got to realize other people's perspective and life. Mm. And living in Germany for four years, it opened my eyes to so much more, that there is so much more out there to see, and people should take advantage of it. Now, when you found out that you were going to be serving in Desert Storm, what was that like? Mm. That wasn't a pretty picture because my colonel at the time was like five foot two. So he had that little short man syndrome. So he stood up at the one um, 120th Ordnance Battalion where we all got called to to get the orders. And he was like, sir, 196th Ordnance Battalion would love to serve you in Desert Storm. I'm like, what are you doing? I'm pulling on his coattail. And I'm like... Stop volunteering me to go to war. I was like, just wait till you get called on. But see, you normally don't talk to a colonel that way. Mm-hmm. But yeah, me, mm, I was like, yeah, this ain't happening. So we was actually third on the list to be deployed, which we did go over to see where the ammunition was going to be coming into. So we spent a few days over to in Desert Storm, and that was enough for me. But. <laughs> uh, but then you still realize how important your role is back in Germany uh, for your fellow soldiers. Mm. So, And now you have, you know, really taken a hold and uh, a personal account of what you went through while in the military um, to help other women veterans. Talk to me a little bit about some of the things that you're doing now. Uh, I'm still a part of Women Veteran Rock, mm-hmm. which uh, I got involved in uh, when we met in Virginia. And I've taken it back to Kentucky to help mostly women veterans uh, cope with depression, uh, any things they need to get their benefits, homeless situations and things like that. It's very important to have a voice as a female because we don't wear our military on our our bodies mostly because you see a lot of men with the hats on or the shirt women you very seldom see us walking around with our patriotism on us so it's hard to identify that person Mm. because sometimes they need help but they don't want to ask for it and you don't even realize they need help or they're a veteran Mm. until you see maybe showing up at a, a veteran event or you see them at va and go oh You know, do you know about this program? Do you know about that? So that's why we've reached out to a lot of veterans, women in Kentucky. Now, as a woman veteran, what would you say is the biggest misconception around, um, you know, serving your country, coming home, and then, like, I feel like most of the times people um, kind of assume that y'all are that women and men too are being taken care of or you know that there are certain perks to you know fulfilling your obligation to your country and then returning back into civilianhood 
What are some of those misconceptions? Well, they don't give you a handbook when you leave. They don't say this is what you need to do now or this is where you go to get your benefits and how to fill out forms and everything like that. Mm -hmm. They just say thank you for your service and goodbye. So it took eight years for me to even know that I had benefits coming to me. Really? Yeah. Like, they don't tell you nothing? Nothing. No, once you're done, you're done. That's it. There's no uh, debriefing on what you get as a veteran or anything like that. So I had to talk to other veterans to find out what what my benefits were. And I could have been getting them from the day I left out of active duty. Now, is this why... Um, there are there's a, a large amount of homeless veterans when they re- are removed from active duty. Right. And it's gotten better, but it's mostly the older wars that people are still having problems getting their benefits because a lot of documentation and stuff was not as good as it is now. Mm. So just to get your paperwork from when you like even my era to just to get my paperwork is a hard problem to get. Mm. And your DD-214s, a lot of soldiers, you know, didn't have that and things like that. So the military is slow at getting to veterans and helping them. But I feel like they're quick to recruit. Mm. Yes. And they're quick to do a lot of things when it benefits them, Mm. but not when it benefits a veteran. Mm. So... Wow, that's deep. We're speaking with Robin Stewart, the woman behind DB Bourbon Candy. And we're talking about her um, time spent in the military and her give back post being in the military. Now, Robin, you hold these various positions um, as somebody, you know, to go to to be a resource. How are you how do you think that you're most effective with helping women veterans? What do you think is the most effective um, way that you can be a resource? Um, I've been currently we're going to host an event in Kentucky for the first time, and it's called uh, VIAC, and it's where not only women veteran but all veterans across the state can come. And in two days, we're going to try to get things done for you, mm. regardless if it's filing a claim, health, whatever you need. We're we're recruiting all resources for veterans. And it's on state and national level are coming in for this. Oh, wow. And it's going to be hosted in July. Mm-hmm. And so everyone gets to come in when you had a problem getting your uh, claim filed or needing to see a doctor for something. We're definitely 24-7 trying to fix these problems for however many people that come in. We're not going to shut the doors until we see the last person. Oh, wow. Where, where will that be held? In Lexington, Kentucky. Okay. And they're normally held different states, mm-hmm. but this is our first time hosting an event. Oh, wow. That's awesome. All right. Now, so you served in the military. You came out. You got some jobs. And I think you were with Toyota probably the longest. Yes. Um, and you built up your, your muscle mm-hmm. of, um, you know, really working and getting a sense of, like, what all you had in you that you wanted to push out. Right. Um, In 2002, though, um, you went through a situation where you lost your mother. Yes. Talk to me a little bit about uh, what happened inside of you and what you started to do at at that point. Well, me and my mom were mostly like best friends. And and there wasn't a day I didn't go by speaking to her. And it's the same woman that you were like, deuces, (laughs) I'm rolling. (laughs) 
Exactly. So, but um, that was my learning period. But um, my mom had total knee replacement in October 2001, and then she got infected in her bloodstream and died June 4th, uh, 2002. And that day at 3.15 on a Monday, my life changed forever because I no longer was. My mom used to call me Doodlebug, and uh, Doodlebug changed. Um, my life was never the same. I, I went through uh, suicide attempts, several, uh, of the loss of my mom. And the candy is what pulled me out of that. And so Doodlebug is what DB stands for. Because yes. that was going to be my next question. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. So the one person that you once ran from <laughs> was also the person who drew you closer to your calling. Yeah which was to use her recipes that you had been doing since you were, what, five years old? Yeah. And now this candy is literally known all <laughs> over the world. It's, you know, been seen and had at the Oscars and the Academy Awards. What were those moments like for you? It's crazy because I owned a modeling agency prior to the candy business, mm. and I had to give it up when mom got sick. And um, when I started my first event um, for the candy, had no clue what to do. And I, even though I had rolled a thousand before that, um, it was just off instinct and the will wanting to give back to my mom and make her proud. Mm-hmm. And the first event was a derby event. And uh, you know how I don't believe in luck, it was faith that things happen in a certain way in your life Mm -hmm. so at that event it happened to have uh, people from California there which a few months after the derby I got an invite to do the Oscars for the first time but I thought they were crazy I'm just (laughs) like yeah okay whatever so I spoke with my publicist and I told her and she said what I said I know right and I said but what will we do I mean had no clue what to do and so by the time that February came around and everything she released it and she said are you for her personally she said you ready for this I'm like ready for what she said no seriously it's going to happen right after I release this so she happened to pair the release with two Kentucky Kentucky women going to the Oscars which was the first time Jennifer Lawrence got put up for an Oscar mm. and when she did it my phone was just ringing off the hook for interviews for this for that and even money do you need something and that was the key point there <laughs> yes, we need money. <laughs> so what year did it go to the Oscars? Was that oh. the year after you launched it? Or like what what was the first yeah, year it that was, it was featured in the Kentucky Derby? Uh, 2009, I want to say. Okay, yeah. that you started working with the Derby. Yeah. Okay. And then the year after. Right, that following. Oscars, yeah, because Derby's in May. That following February at Oscars, it was there. And then what about the Academy Awards? Well, from the Oscars, uh, someone was there, and they asked me to come and do the, uh, well, do the Emmys. Mm. And so we did the Emmys that same year. Mm. And, of course, then by the time Derby came back around, it was like the Triple Crown because I also got to be uh, in the Taste of the World for Breeders' Cup. So everything was just following just too, a lot for me in one year. Right. But you you go with it. You yeah. either you either do it or you don't. Right. So and we you had did. to do it. Yeah. I, I had love to. It. <laughs> All right. Now during this time, 
um, you know, like you said, it was just kind of like something you did on the side. And everybody knows that I have a book, Side Hustle to Main Hustle. And there's this transition point where it's like you you either leap because you know that you're going to soar or you stay stuck. Mm-hmm. What did it take for you to make that leap? It's crazy because I was actually, my candy was here in 2017 doing the uh, presidential inauguration uh, gala. And there was a person at my table, and I had been trying to get my candy in the military uh, bases, in the uh, commissaries. Mm -hmm. And there was a man at the table that someone introduced me to, which it was in his department in the military, in the government. That's his job. He was the man. And in my eyes, it's about faith. Mm -hmm. And I was like, only God could put me in touch with a person that's untouchable. Mm Mm-hmm. And at that moment, I told, because I had had signs, but I ignored them. And then I said, I hear you loud and clear. And in 2016, in September, I gave my resignation to Toyota and started doing the business 100%. Now, what did it take? Because I feel like a lot of times people will come to me or people will have these conversations and they're like, but how do I know when I'm ready? How do I know like that I have everything that I need? And there's this sense of fear, mm-hmm. um, uncertainty, and something that holds you back. Besides hearing and seeing that things will be provided for you, what were you doing that led up to not only being able to hear but to kind of show you, like, you're good, like, it's time. It, it, my mom brought me up on faith. Mm-hmm. Put God first. It's simple for me. Because everything I do in my life, you can't stress after getting over my depression, not really over, but through my depression, you realize as you get older, some of the things your parents were teaching you when you were young, you really didn't listen and hear it. Mm-hmm. But as an adult, you start understanding so this is what she meant this is why this is happening Mm. and you recognize it as an adult which you couldn't have fathomed Mm -mm. Mm -hmm. as a young adult so those things started to fall into place for me visually when I say I started to see God when my mom died Mm. because I wasn't seeing him I was seeing her Mm. through God's eyes Mm -hmm. from her Mm -hmm. but when she was gone then that opened my own eyes to see it for myself. Right. So I am a true believer that I don't worry about if I have to, if I need money for a big event, I know it's going to happen. Mm-hmm. You just have to be patient. Don't rush yourself. It's not going to happen overnight. Mm-hmm. Uh, no matter how successful you can be at one event or something like that, it's still pushing yourself every single day. And it, it's a true hustle. Because I tell people all the time, when you own your own business, it's 24-7. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Now, with your candies, talk to us a little bit about uh, what your candies taste like, what it is. I know I've said that it's a bourbon candy, but what is that? Uh, In Kentucky, the staple is bourbon, uh, besides horses. And uh, it's called a bourbon ball. And my mom's recipe, I got from her. So I just took her recipe and added my little twist to it, which was dipping it in chocolate, versus hers was just rolled in confection sugar. So I put my little twist to it, and it's actual bourbon in it. So many people think, oh, so it's cooked off. No, you you have bourbon in it. 
<laughs> so, but you can't get you. Some people say they get a little buzz, but um, but it's actually a well-known candy in Kentucky. Mine just is a little different than the original person who founded the Bourbon Ball, and so uh, from there, I just took off with it. And so, does it? Do you have different flavors? Or, you know, can you get it with nuts? Can yeah. you get? But you, you also have like cheesecake and other items now, right? I, yeah, I do. You can get it with nuts, without nuts, chocolate, dark chocolate, white chocolate, any kind of flavors on the outside. Um, but I did on the side. If I do a private events, mm. some people want something more. So I do bourbon cheesecakes. Uh, I also do chocolate covered grapes, pineapples, strawberries, just different things with chocolate. Nice. Yeah. What has been um, your greatest lesson learned uh, since deciding to own all of who Robin is and to put all of her faith in herself? Mm, That's a good one. Um, My mom's motto growing up was can't is not an option. No is not in our vocabulary. And I've lived by that. So she used to say, you know how as a kid you go, I don't like that or or I can't and you haven't even tried yet. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So she was like, I don't care what you do, don't say the words unless you've done it. Mm. So then if you have the option of choosing, okay, no, I don't like that. No, I can't do that. But don't say you can't do something until you try. Mm. So where is the fear? Because for me, people say, well, what if they say no? I said, well, no is just a different way to another yes. Mm-hmm. Because there's always a different way to a yes. It doesn't mean no, I could stop right there and it's the end of it. Mm-hmm. So you have to find that different direction for your yes. And it might take a while, but you have to be patient. Mm-hmm. And that's the, the biggest thing is being patient and not rush. Because then you could miss out on some of your blessings. Now, how do you overcome those times when business is slow and I know we have faith, but there also becomes a time where you're like, okay, God, where are you? Because I need you to show up, like, right, right now. Right. Like, not tomorrow. Right. Like, while I'm asleep, maybe, but I need this, like, now. Exactly. What do you do in those moments? Uh, I also own a company called um, ST um, Notaries. Mm-hmm. I have a notary business on the side that's... Um, that's actually is 24-7 because you need a notary all the time. Right. So when time is slow with the candy, I normally do my notary business on the side as well, but it's continued hustle. Right, right. Now, could you ever see yourself going back into a situation where you're working for somebody? That's hard because <laughs> um, I've been out of it for so long because a lot of people ask me, do you miss Toyota? Mm, nah. Mm-mm. Yeah. No, because uh, I don't care what I have to do to walk straight and narrow with my own self. I, I can't see that happening again. It would have to be an awful big deal. Mm-hmm. And it would have to be working with something I'm really passionate about, like veterans or something like that. Are you tired of dragging yourself into the office while your business ideas are being left at home? It might be time to turn your side hustle into your main hustle. Join me as I take you on a journey of transitioning into a full-time entrepreneur in my book, Side Hustle to Main Hustle, The Woman's Guide to Transitioning into Full-Time Entrepreneurship. 
I'll walk you through my five-step system to give you the confidence, business structure, accountability, support, and transparency you need to transition effectively and successfully. To grab your free downloadable copy of the book, text DREAM to 31996. That's DREAM to 31996. Welcome back to the Woman Behind the Business Talk Show. I'm your host, Angel Livis. Now, we're shifting gears from chocolate to tech. According to our next guest, she utilizes technology to build and develop solutions because it's the only resource that she knows can touch an entire planet. That is such a deep statement. Um, and so in studio with me, I have Emily Let Jackson, who is the woman behind Metro Federal Services, Inc., or MFSI a technology company that offers agile transparency to generate solution-based applications. Welcome to the show, Emily. Thank you for having me, Angel. So, Emily, I feel like you are like the majority of women. Um, And when I say that, I mean who have this desire to be an entrepreneur um, but hasn't quite dove in full body. Right, you you still got your toes testing the waters. Correct. Um, but I also think that you develop the passion for entrepreneurship and your specific niche as an entrepreneur very early on. Talk to us a little bit about um, when you first started dibbling and dabbling with your passion. Uh, that's deep. <laughs> so I think entrepreneurship passion has probably come in the last maybe six or seven years where mm-hmm. I feel like I didn't need a company establishment to facilitate like what my dream is. As far as dibbling and dabbling in my passion as far as inventing and creating, that has been since like high school. So I think what I remember very clearly back in the day, I used to pull out a lot of different um, pictures of either shoes or fashion or something that had them all over my wall. And I always knew- Your mama let you put it on your wall? My mom did. Wow. She's a good mom. She's like, okay, whatever, just as long as it's clean. So the floor had to be clean, the room had to be clean, but your walls could be whatever. So I would literally tape pictures all over at least two or three walls in my room. Well, I probably had four, so two walls for sure um, in my room of just things that I wanted to create. Mm-hmm. So um, I never went to fashion school. I never went to um, any, any had any kind of technical training, but I knew that if I could get my hands on materials um, or gadgets, pull them apart, put them back together, that I would be able to create some of the dreams that I had. So long story short, probably since high school, which I guess that doesn't tell my age because I sound super young, um, but was probably, gosh, um, 20-ish years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and as I said, um, as far as being an entrepreneur and wanting to do it on my own, probably about six years. Now, what was that first invention that you made? <laughs> The first invention was actually, um, it was a little um, P3 
piece that went inside the heel of a um, shoe of a lady's high heel pump. And what it would do is make it more comfortable when you walked. When so, you were 15, that's yeah, what you created? Yeah, that's what I created. And it's kind of, it developed over the years into like, oh, I could use this material, I could use that material. But that was like one of my, because I loved shoes. Like, I'm looking at yours and they're amazing. Um, but I loved then really fashioning shoes. And you, so this is also like, how the dream gets deferred, right? Mm -hmm. Because I was a junior in high school and all the young ladies and men that were going into the fashion um, uh, industry were all going to have portfolios and they were going to FIT or they're going to Parsons or, you know, lots of the, the big schools at that point. And I didn't have any of that. I didn't even know what that meant. I had never been in any kind of training for anything like that. But I was like, I'm still going to try. They said, well, you're not going to get into any of these schools if you don't have a portfolio. So at that point, I was just like, oh, okay, well, that won't be my path. I'll have to do it some other kind of way. So I was, I would just think of, okay, if someone gave me, like, the resources today to do it, well, how would I create something? Mm -hmm. So I would just be in my room and create things. And I said, well, I love fashion, so I'm going to, and I hate high heels. I love high heels, but I hate how they feel. And I just started putting materials together to put inside of, and I actually had designed it out, um, how it would fit inside the heel of the shoe. Women would never know about it. You know, fast forward 2003, Cole Haan and Nike designed a shoe for women that's more comfortable. So um, I say whatever people say you can't do, do it even harder with a passion. Now, have you actually developed out any of these inventions? I have. So so that's the fashion side of mm -hmm. me um, or industry. As I became more, um, I guess, exposed to uh, society and actually some of the global challenges that are happening in the world, I realized that, you know, I want to have inventions, as you said in your intro, that really are going to touch everyone. And I work in international development and have for the last 12 years. And in international development, I've traveled to many, many countries. And the one thing you can see people with, whether they're in the rural area or here, um, uh, or in the city is that they have a phone. So in thinking about how to create solutions, I've created apps. So I have created or invented some of the ideas that I have had through now um, applications and in, in mobile technology. Like what? Like what? Um, I currently have an app for, um, well, it's called Check On Me, and that app is designed for the EMS and 911 um, health management systems mm -hmm. so that instead of necessarily having to dial 911, you can text 911 as soon as you text them and tell them and, and basically have drop downs for what your problem is. That signal then goes to them. They can click on it. They can see where you're at. So mm -hmm. it's a locator also. Um, they can get help to your exact location and or send 
send help to if you're calling for someone else to their location. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it also has the ability to take your vital so that when EMS does come out to you, they can also uh they also know what kind of equipment or where where you're at in your status of health to to ensure that you know they facilitate the process quicker. Now, how um, does it take your vitals? So, just wow. on your phone pad, yeah. Like, like, so I don't have to carry anything extra with no. me. No, and this works. It ha- it does work. <laughs> yeah, like, oh, does it work? Yes, it do- it does work. It works. But you, the, let me tell you what the, the, the challenge is that you have to convince um, you have to convince directors and um, health management um, agencies mm-hmm. that this is actually a technology that in a smart city that DC is supposed to be like a smart city that is actually going to um, make a difference make a difference but also, change the trajectory of how people think. So instead of just picking up the phone to make a call or text uh, or, you know, look through Instagram or whatever you do with your phone, actually, this is this can be like my access to saving my life. Mm -hmm. And I think that they are they haven't always evolved in their thinking that the technology is what can be a lifesaver. At least for their systems, because also their systems are antiquated. So that means I've got to upgrade my system, mm-hmm. um, you know, for D.C. government or even for federals, mm-hmm. for the federal system. Now, what was the genesis behind that particular app? Like, what made you say, hmm, instead of calling, let me text or create a, a platform for people to be able to text? Or even simpler, you know, what if it's just a press of a button? Um, the genesis behind it was one day, actually, a real life story, you know, needing to get through to 911 and on the phone call, frustrated, upset, crying, and can't get the words out because mm-hmm. I'm like so scared. I had a newborn, well, she was probably about a month old baby, and she had received a burn. I'm like, what do I do? I don't know what to do. They can't understand what I'm saying because I'm like frantic. I hang up the phone and I just drive to the ER. And she's fine, you know, now. And they, it wasn't third degree or anything. Um, but it was just the point that, and this was, she's now 18. This was, so this was like mm-hmm. many years ago. But from that point, just thinking about, how do how, like how what happens when you're too upset to talk on the phone mm-hmm. and why don't we have technology that's going to be able to take me tapping some buttons on my phone basically drop down menus telling them what I want them receiving the message and then being able to get the right support to me mm-hmm. quickly but also they are overwhelmed, yeah. you know. How yeah. how many calls can you take at once? You can only actually take one call at a time. Right. And so then that means you have to, you know, triple your workload, your workforce, which is fine. Mm-hmm. But what if you can take five calls at one time because they're all on your screen? You dis- you dispatch the, the services that are needed, and then you can go to the next however many. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And I can also see that being useful. I mean, I've been in a situation where um, I was in college and I was working at the store and the store got robbed at gunpoint. Mm. And, you know, in stores, you're not supposed to have your cell phone on the floor. This one did. And I just remember I called the police, right? And that, to me, would be a situation where you can't really talk because they could turn around and shoot you. You know what I mean? And so having an option to be able to just be like, okay, look, this was going Or what about um, being abducted? Right. You know, young people, any age, actually, if you are abducted and all you need to do is push a button and Mm -hmm. you, you know, as soon as it comes up, maybe there's something that prompts that says, you know, it it probably wouldn't say kidnap, but like this is like the Amber Alert. So it's 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 the Amber Alert for those who are actually abducted Mm -hmm. opposed to someone saying, oh, I saw somebody abducted and then they're, you know, sending that out. Saving yourself. Correct. Correct. So you're currently straddling the fence. And anybody who knows anything about my book, Side Hustle to Main Hustle, you know. Um, you must have saw my hair on. today because this God. is the real straddle. <laughs> um, I'm constantly working to empower people to step out on faith and either start your business or if you've been straddling that fence of full-time, entre- I mean, of side hustle and a full-time job, you know, make a choice, right? Mm-hmm. Now... And with your situation, you're waking up every morning to punch the clock and still coming home and being creative. Yes. What's keeping you from releasing yourself to become a full-time business owner? Wow, you're getting spiritual on me. Um, because that's what it is, right? It's It's about... So it's about timing and it's about faith. And when God says it's time to go, you go um, or not. And actually, two years ago, I did leave my job. Um, So as I said, I work in international development. I did not want to do that aspect of my job anymore. And the whole um, department was overhauled. Mm -hmm. And so I said, oh, this is a great time for except for me. I was the last one that they did not um, uh, terminate from the from my department, so I stayed for probably a year and a half more. In that point, I had a transition plan, and I left. And I actually worked independently for about four months, and um, I think the fear of not knowing how much longer it would be until I had a, like you get used to the rat race of a paycheck, right? Mm -hmm. So I had enough money to probably last me six or seven, eight months, Mm -hmm. but I still was like, well, what happens beyond eight months? What if I don't get a contract? You know, so, and I have children, you know, I have three girls, about to two of them are about to go to college so I think it's it's really fear and probably not enough faith to believe that you know if God has said this is your time then you believe that's your time until until he sends the check (laughs) so what happened in those four months that discouraged you I talked to 
EMS, and they were like, oh, yeah, we're not actually ready to do something, you know, along those lines yet. Mm -hmm. Um, The director, um, she she was just actually coming into the role at that point, and she thought it was a good idea. And this is us just, you know, kind of talking through email, um, but she said, keep in touch. So then I had talked to, I mean, even in the international development space, talked to a lot of people um, at International Development Bank who thought it was a great idea. So everybody thinks it's a great idea, but nobody wants to be the one to actually help promote it or invest in it until it actually kicks off. Then mm-hmm. when someone kick, when it kicks off and it's flourishing or doing well, then they're ready to invest. Right. And I just, um, I probably needed you. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I, I I had enough confidence to like, I mean, I feel like I can create anything, actually. I do that all the time in, in international development and the work I do. But when you're creating it and, and your livelihood depends on that creation and you're not sure, like, well, I don't have a team and who else is going to help me mm-hmm. and who else is going to believe in me? And that's the other thing, having the right support. Like, who else is going to believe in me as much as I believe in me? And how right. long will it take for somebody to believe in me? Um, and even to say, like, yeah, you can do it. Um, it it's, it's, it's intense. Now, have you shifted your model from the two years ago structure? Because if you were my client, I would not have you just developing things that you want to develop. I would have you find out what the market calls for. Right. And then you know that they're going to pay for it because they've sat down giving you the specs and said, hey, this is what we need. Right. Um, I think I have shifted my model. So I have gone to Ward 6 meetings, which is where I live, and listened to the challenges Mm -hmm. that they are experiencing in the ward, but also just um, for in D.C. in general, especially with crime prevention. So I created an app that I thought would... Did you ask them (laughs) before you created the app? But they said what the challenge was. They said the challenge is A, B, and C. So the challenge was how do we get uh, DPW and 311 and the actual uh, community to talk so that when there is a problem in your community with parking or trash or whatever it could be, you call 311, it goes into wherever it goes to, and then they dispatch it out to whomever they dispatch it to. Mm-hmm. So I said, well, I can create a solution Wait for Wait a them. second. Who did you tell you could create a solution to? Did I, you say this in your head, or did you have no, a conversation? I said I can create the solution in my head. I created <laughs> it, and then I went and I told the commissioner, I created the solution for you. So she said, okay, I'm going to give it to our community liaison. Um, and then when I talked to her about it, actually I saw her a couple weeks ago, and she said, I don't think the community liaison was the right person for me to give it to. Um, I Maybe I should. And so it... I could go on and on about the maybe woulda, shoulda, coulda, maybe. So to answer your question, no, I did not ask them first. <laughs> that was a long way of saying that. So, so I and I think that this is a real problem that most startups have, or most people like they want to do what they think makes sense and is going to work, and then you do it, but. If you're not getting paid for it, then it's just a hobby. It's this this elaborate, costly, costly in the 
the sense of time, hobby that's being created and beautiful products are being made that I'm sure if people were like, got their hands on it to experience it, they'd be like, yo, this is pretty awesome. But I think a lot of startups do this, um, they don't do the market research before going to market with a product. And then when that happens, it causes you to, to start feeling some kind of way because you're like, don't nobody want my stuff. <laughs> and I don't know if that's how I you feel. I don't think that. I okay. just think they're still catching up. You want to know why I say that? Because everything... No, she, she gave me the finger. I'm just... <laughs> A little bit. She's coming because, you, because the reason I'm passionate about just that statement you made, because every single um, invention or design I have created and someone did not jump on the idea or did not understand the idea, years later, it's then created. And sometimes it's not even years. Sometimes it's like a year. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's like two years. Even if you look at Uber, what they're doing right now, they are now contracting with medical doctors to instead of the medical um, doctors or uh, practices having to call the metro access to come pick up the patients they now have contracted with them to pick people up for them Mm -hmm. so they took a model they're they're like an inch away actually from what my idea is and if we if there was a collaboration that's like the perfect marriage so how do you how do how do you get connected to the right or is that why you're looking at me like yeah like like (laughs) there is um an organization visible figures and it is um a african-american woman who actually invented kind of a girl's network good like you know you have the Good Boys Club or Mm -hmm. whatever club is for guys. She created this girls network in tech. And basically, it's about synergy and being able to talk about um, opportunities for ideas or angel investors or um, opportunities that are usually closed session, inviting African-American tech people to it. Mm -hmm. So that's part of what some of the... um, I guess challenges is being able to connect to the right person or connecting to the decision maker that can actually say yes to the idea. Mm-hmm. And how do you get to that? Like, how do you, um, and, and maybe it's, it is having, you know, like a marketing team that knows how to tell your idea in a way that sells it and makes it relevant at that exact moment. And I don't know if I've been able to do... I clearly have not been able to do that. It's okay. We're going to get you there. I'm going to have you enroll in the main hustle executive program so we can help you with that roadmap and that transition plan so that you can execute your vision for your baby, which is creating these amazingly socially conscious um, applications to help society. Yes. Um, So, yeah, we're going to talk about that. But, Emily, this has been absolutely phenomenal, like just hearing about your journey, because I think that this is like the rawness of entrepreneurship that even on the show, we don't always have that dialogue. Um, But I think that there, like I said earlier, so many women that are in a similar place as you. So this has been awesome. Um, Thank you. 
I want you to stay with us. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, it will be time for our Moments from the Valley. And Moments from the Valley is a time that I'm going to ask both of our guests to share a time and place that you did not know how you were going to overcome a particular situation, what that situation was, how you overcame it, and what was waiting for you on the other side. Okay. So when we come back from listening to a little Jill Scott, I think I'm feeling a little Jill Scottish, um, then we will uh, listen to y'all Moment from the Valley. All right, stay with us. Honey molasses, For your call, but you chose not to call me. I wondered what happened. Were you inside a safe space? And two, I wondered, were you thinking about me? And if you were, why was I feeling so lonely? By the phone, alone to the bone. Although the night before you were in my home, my body, my dome, in a circle of passion. We, Paris, Italy, Japan, Africa, Rome. We made music. We tried. Welcome back. Now it's time for us to hear from Robin. You're going to share your moment from the valley. My moment from the valley would be when I first tried to commit suicide after my mom's death. Um, I don't know. I blacked out in the tub. I, I used pills, sleeping pills as the choice. I don't know how I came out of the tub. Um back into my bed but I remember someone being there for me uh, when I woke up uh, I was dazed didn't know how I got from the bathroom to my bedroom and from that moment on the struggle of depression was a, a main focus of mine of getting healthy because I was struggling with my mom's death but also 
with my new identity without my mom. And what I learned from the suicide attempts was that it's not the fact of wanting to kill myself. It's the it's the grief, the loneliness you feel that that one person that was on your side your whole life and on your team, your cheerleader, your you can do anything person was gone because I was brought up with validation and not having that validation I got lost in finding who Robin was and I know that after her death I am a different Robin than I was before her death but becoming the new Robin has strengthened me more than I even thought I had and to know that she prepared me for being stronger as a female. And the good thing about it is um, I think you always have the depression in you, but I'm no longer to the point where I can't handle if I get in, caught up in being sad or wanting to kill myself anymore. Mm-hmm. What I do is I speak out about it because I think it's important for other people to know that yeah, I have those feelings, and I need to know how to deal with them. And it's not just all glitz and glam and glory for somebody that on the outside, if you don't know me looking in, you think, well, she's got it all. And it's not true because it's a struggle for me just to deal with depression. But I do go to therapy and things like that. It's not taboo for not only women but African-American women to have issues that we need to deal with and do deal with it in the right way. So you can still be the best you you can be, but to also recognize you can also help somebody. Because without speaking it, I'm not doing anybody else any justice. justice. So I'm not ashamed of that at all. I think it helps other women to deal or other people to deal with their depression. So it made me into a better person, technically. It really did. Because I don't think I knew I had that strength in me. And and then you have to recognize, yeah, you know your religion part of it and everything, but it becomes more personable than that. And it made me grow with God in a personal relationship so much more. And so, but I know it's crazy, but uh, the growth I got out of losing my mom was crazy. I wish I had her back, but I mean, it's still, uh, the growth was unbelievable. Wow. All right, Robin, thank you so much for sharing your moment from the Valley. Um, Next, Emily. Moment from the Valley. Well, uh, I was about, I have a... I have a daughter now that's 26, a daughter that's 18, and a daughter that is 16. When they were... I guess one, three, and maybe nine or so. Um, I was married to uh, um, their their father, and he was a habitual cheater, and I just 
could not take it um, after many, many years any longer, so I decided to leave. And when I left, I had nothing. I left my house, I left my, I didn't leave my car. Um, I left bank accounts, I left everything. And um, I became homeless with three kids, but I did it um, to preserve my sanity, but also to show my children that, like you don't have to accept whatever the world says is the best for you. And when I did that, I ended up going into a homeless shelter um, that actually probably saved my life, literally me and my kid's life. And um, I did not, at the time it was like the most awful thing I could think of, but it was also probably, um, I mean, I know it was the most life-altering events that had happened to me, not just because of the homelessness piece, because actually I was working at City Paper at the time, so I was still going to work, and I was homeless. My kids were still going to school, but we were homeless. And But that's also the time when I was introduced to Alpha Street, and... Um, my kids growing up in Alfred Street has just fundamentally and spiritually made them, like, they always say you can't get God off your mama's shirt tail or whatever, and they have it for themselves, like, unapologetically. They they know God, and they have seen God work in, like, so many ways from, you know, delivering us from homelessness. So, and we were in the homeless shelter. This was... Um, actually um, right in Old Town Alexandria. Now they're turning it into like a very big homeless shelter now, but it was quite small back then. But um, we were there for probably about a year, then went into transition housing, not too far away from there, then went into my own apartment. And that's also the time when I got into um, recruiting and international development. So it was just like... um, I mean, I know God just taught me to trust him and also trust his process. And I also met my best friends to this day going through that process at Alfred Street. I was in the moms and babes um, uh, Bible study or Sunday school. And uh, Angela and Akima and Jean and, like, just amazing women, women. And we all had small kids. And, like, they just loved me back to life. And I don't think that there's any, um, there's no substitute for being loved at a state when you feel and look unlovable. Um, so that just gave me the confidence to like keep moving and keep going. And unless I tell you I was homeless, I don't look it. I mean, I know I'm having a rough day, but I don't look it, right? <laughs> <laughs> like, I'm just saying, so God, like, I just believe like God, God can do anything, anytime, at any state you're in, like he meets you where you're at. You just have to be willing to to meet him there. Yeah. And be flexible. Yeah. That's what we heard last night, right? <laughs> so be flexible. All right, awesome. Well thank you so much for sharing your testimony and your moment from the valley. And same thing with you, Robin. Um I always say this, but I truly believe that our moments that we are at our lowest points 
are not necessarily just for us, but it's for us to share and empower and encourage other people who may be in a similar position. Um, And them being able to see that you've made it to the other side will inspire them and let them know that there is light at the end of the tunnel. So I truly appreciate you both for sharing your moments from the valley. Thank Um, you. Would you like to share your social media information um, so people can stay in contact with you? Sure. Um, (laughs) I should be more savvy with it. But um, so it's my Instagram is let God, L-E-T-T-E, God. It's all lowercase. Let is my last name. And my email address is E-F-L-E-T-T-E at gmail.com. Okay, that's good. Yes. Thank you so much for sharing. All right. Well, that is our show for today. Thank you both for joining us. And please be sure to check out past broadcasts on our website, wbbtalk.com. And um, we have an upcoming event that's going to take place at the City Club of Washington in Washington, D.C. called Women Winning in Government Contracting. It's going to happen on Thursday, March 26th from 8.30 a.m. to 1.30 p.m. And it's all about how do you get those government contracts? How do you overcome your fear of being intimidated for getting the contracts, going after them? Where do you go? All of it. Um, We're going to discuss it. So you can learn more at www.gc2020.eventbrite.com. Otherwise, we want to say thank you to our show producer, Cal Murdoch, and our program director, Max Myrick. Until next time, stay blessed.